So we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting kind of close to the end, um, and uh, we are beginning this morning to look at the very starting out of Jesus's conclusion in this sermon. Um, we're, we're getting to the point now where Jesus is starting to wrap up his teaching and kind of consolidate it. Talk about all the important things that you'd want to hit when you're wrapping up a message like this. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the things that Jesus emphasizes in that very part of the sermon. Uh, this morning, we're looking at three verses, and really even of those three verses, there's one that I think is so familiar and so easy to remember for many of us that you'll probably just be like, never mind, we don't even need to talk about it, we're all doing great in this, we can go home. But I think it might bear taking a look at still. It's chapter 7, verses 12 through 14 is what we're going to look at this morning. And we know this as the golden rule probably says that in your Bible right above it. I'll put it up on the screen. Matthew 7, verses 12 through 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Uh, what Jesus is saying in verse 12 here, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus's way of both beginning the uh, conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount and also looking back to something that is the most central part of Old Testament law and the prophets. We hear it come up several times in Jesus's ministry in other places, not just in the Sermon on the Mount. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 19 in the law to God's people, the Israelites. It says this. This is a big portion of law on basically like criminal law code dealing with when people treat each other badly. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Israelites had um, this very short saying called the Shema, and it was their central sort of uh, saying that they would recite to one another. They would memorize it from youth. Uh, it's kind of one of those things where, like, if we had a saying that if you stood up every more every Sunday morning and we all said it together, it would kind of recenter us and remind us of what's important. It was. Um, The Lord our God is one. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was part of it, the Shema. And they would say it again and again and again. They would say it often repetitively throughout their prayers and throughout their day. Um, What Jesus is speaking of and what we read about here in Leviticus 19 is something that so commonly comes up in the Bible, which is this very simple idea. If you were to sum up the law, very simply, it would be so easy to remember. Love God, love your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? How much do I love my neighbor? What way do I love my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy to remember because I love myself and I'm actually pretty good at that, right? So, okay, that's helpful. That's actually really helpful. This is the heart of the law. But it isn't something that we just read about in the Sermon on the Mount. There is something called the law of reciprocity that actually goes back before this when Jesus is teaching it. It's something that you read about in literally every religious group, every culture, every uh, form of government in some way or another exhibits this very basic fundamental law as its foundation, as an important component of the law. Um, This idea of treating other people in a certain way based simply upon how you want to be treated, okay? This exists everywhere. You read about it all the way back. You go back to ancient Egypt, and written in their law, was, uh, it was worded like this, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. In ancient India, it was written about in their, uh, in their text, the Mahabharata. In ancient Greece, it was, uh, this was something that everybody practiced and everybody recommended. Thales said, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Okay, that's pretty simple. The Pythagoreans, this is super confusing the way it's worded, but this is how they translate it out. They say, what you do not want to happen to you, uh, do not do it yourself either. And then uh, there were others, the Stoics, who said, do not do unto others that which angers you when they do it to you. That's just an ancient Greek culture. 
Zoroastrianism, which is a very old Persian religion rooted in the idea of dark and light, good versus evil, the real duality that's kind of binding the universe together and the tension that comes from that being what sort of everything comes from. Zoroastrians said uh, the nature al- that nature alone is good, which refrains from doing to another whatsoever is not good for oneself. In ancient Rome, uh, they said, treat your inferiors, you would wish your superior to treat you. That was in reference to slaves. You read about this same idea of avoiding doing bad things to other people because you don't want them to do it to you. In Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism and Confucianism and Taoism, we read about it in newer religious movements, things like Wicca, things like Scientology. We read about it in any form of economics. Um, uh, one economist said that this, uh, without some form of the rule of reciprocity, society would no longer even be able to, to function. All the way to evolutionary scientists, humanists, secular ethicists, who say, remove all God or religious thought from any equation whatsoever, anything supernatural at all, and when you are left with finding a way to live with one another, they say this, uh, this is a quote from a book called Think Humanism. Many people find the golden rules, or no, I'll say this one first. Uh, this was from a book called The Decalogue for the Modern World. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you is the single greatest, simplest, and most important moral axiom humanity has ever invented. Another humanist said, many people find the golden rules corollary. Do not treat people in a way you would not wish to be treated more pragmatic. So they're basically saying it's actually a lot simpler if you focus on the negative form of this, which is just avoid doing to other people things you want people not to do to you. This basic idea that is interwoven throughout any society, any group of people, any religious group, any line of thought is this empathy, right? Feel and identify with others. That is the basis by which I will treat them I'll put myself in their place. I'll put them in my place. Empathy is like the basis for how we live together and how we function as human beings. It's the thing that we teach young people and we want them to get and to figure out. And the more empathetic that you can be towards other people, the better you will be at knowing maybe how to treat them. I've been talking for the last several weeks (coughs) about my own kids and as they're young, a four and a five-year-old, seeing how much empathy has to be taught. It's not something that we just naturally seem to have. It's crazy. You would think that we're born with empathy. We're not. I can, varin- I can like guarantee you we're not born with empathy. And what's interesting is how difficult it can be to communicate uh, right and wrong, how to live and how to act, how to treat people to a person who doesn't yet have empathy. It's also very interesting to me that people gain empathy in a sense of other people's needs at different, at different levels in life. Like, like my daughter, who's four, is is very much like sensitive to the needs of other people. And my son, who's older than her, right? So he's been around longer. He should know better. Nope, not at all picked up on it yet. Like doesn't care at all about the needs of other people, mainly specifically his sister, his mom, and I, and our dog, right? So doesn't think about them at all, right? Thinks about himself only. You may know some adults who are like, hasn't happened yet, right? They have not picked up on the empathy thing. So the basic instructions of life really come from this idea of connecting with another person and identifying with them and saying, I'm not going to do to you something that I don't want done to me. In fact, if you don't exhibit this, if you don't have this, we have a word for that. It's called a sociopath. And a sociopath is a very real thing. It's a very real kind of a person. It's not just a serial killer, by the way. A sociopath is a person who simply doesn't feel these same things that we seem to naturally be able to feel towards one another. And because they don't feel those things, they don't make decisions the same way. Uh, they, don't, they don't make moral judgments at all the same way. And oftentimes, the only way that they can even function in society, they say, is to learn to imitate the emotions and empathy of other people just so that they can even fit in because they don't know what that's like. Now, what we read about, though, in this In every one of these lines of thinking, in every other religious group, in every other civilization, every other group of people is overwhelmingly a negative form of this golden rule. And that's crucial to understand what Jesus is talking about. The negative is this. It's based off of this. Don't do, it's as this humanist read or or said that I read the quote of, people find it more pragmatic to do the, the corollary or the opposite of the golden rule. They say, I'm gonna avoid harm because I don't want people to harm me. 
That's the one that we should actually all live by. And we read about it the most in other cultures and other religious lines of thinking and ways of thinking and worldviews. Now, there's a reason for that. First of all, it's important to start somewhere, right? And it turns out, this is, might freak you out a little bit when I say this. I, I don't know if it freaked out the first service, um, but um, it kind of freaked me out when I thought about it, honestly. Um, anyone at any time could kill you, okay? At any point, anyone, you're like, Ed, you didn't know that? That just came to you this week? Uh, I thought I was invincible up till this week. Um, anyone at any point could take your life. They have the power to do that. They could not have to think too hard to just end your life. What arguably is the most um, valuable thing to you, maybe, some would even say, your very life that you lived, someone could walk up to you and they could take that away from you. Now, uh, now, now we live in a world, society, with lots of people, Right? And we often surround ourselves with people that we trust more than others. But the fact is, anytime you go out in public, anytime you go anywhere, you're essentially opening yourself up to the risk that somebody could decide, I want to take that person's life. So we have to live. The only way that society can function, the only way that we can have, not, have mass chaos completely is that we have some level of understanding. And it turns out that the one thing that we don't want more than anything is for someone, it seems, to kill us. And then after that, next would maybe be to physically harm us, right? So we don't do it to each other, right? This is the base level of the golden rule. I'm not going to kill you because I wouldn't want someone to walk up to me at the store and kill me, okay? I'm not going to kill you because I don't want the punishment to come to me that will come to me if I do that. But even beyond punishment, people in fits of rage, totally uncontrollable anger would not take another person's life oftentimes. Why? Because they simply can't live in a world in which that's what we do when we get mad at each other. Because my very life hinges upon people following this rule that we've all agreed upon. And so we have to start somewhere, and it kind of makes sense to start at that place. But most other philosophies are reductions in the sense that they express a very low expectation in this regard for how people ought to treat each other. They started a very, very low place. Let's start as low as we can. Don't harm this person. That's it. If we can all just find a way to avoid hurting each other because we want them to avoid hurting us, then we'll be doing pretty well from the outset. And it seems that people are naturally drawn to worldviews that provide them with some sort of structure for living without expecting them to act or behave in a specific way, right? We want some way that we can all be bound together, some rule, some ethic, but we don't want it to expect that much of us. And so nothing appeals more than the golden rule. The golden rule that says, just don't harm people. And then you're doing what you need to do. You're living how you need to live. Everyone can be a part of that. Everyone can agree to doing that. Everyone can abide by that rule. It is, in a sense, the widest road that you could possibly be on. It is a road that has space for everyone. No one's going to disagree with that rule. Now, there's a reason why it's stated negatively so much in so many cultures, and it's actually kind of a good reason. And the reason is this. People would say and have said time and time again throughout history that we don't know what's good for people, but we do seem to know what's bad for people. We can all agree what's bad so we can universally avoid doing bad. But I don't know what you want. I don't know what you desire. I don't know what's good for you. I'll give you guys an example of this, okay? Um, so let's say that I... Ed, move into a new house, and Christmas is six months away. And we all moved into our house, and everything's unpacked, and my mom calls me, and she says, I cannot wait for Christmas, because I bought you something for your new house, and you are going to love it. And I'm like, all right, this sounds good. Wow, mom's really excited about this. She's never done this before, never given me advanced warning like this. She's very excited to talk to my sister. Mom won't stop talking about the present she got you. I sure feel great, thanks, you know. But uh, yeah, she's really excited about it. Like, it's a big deal. She spent a lot of time and says a lot of money and like a lot of work and everything and like really, really excited about this present that she got you that you're gonna love. 
And, uh, and then my mom keeps telling me, like, I can't wait, I can't wait, Christmas is going to be so great, we're going to get together. We get together for Christmas, finally, uh, I'm getting the gift. I mean, you guys know what it's like, right? You move into a new house, you're like, there's a couple of things I could use in this house that are probably bigger type things. So when my mom says, I got you a really amazing gift, this is very, this is looking very good, right? And then everybody opens their presents, and I don't get my gift, and she's like, oh no, Ed's gift's in the garage, I, I couldn't fit it in the house. Oh, I like this, right? I couldn't fit it in the door. So let's all go out to the garage, everyone's mad, they resent me. We go out to the garage, we open the garage door, and there is this huge thing, like filling up almost the whole garage, and it's wrapped with gift wrapping, wrapping paper. So you gotta unwrap it. Okay, here, what is this? You know, it's it's like this would be like the biggest TV in the world or something. And so I start to unwrap it and I pull it off, and it is what can only be described as this didn't happen to me, by the way. I know it's very specific, these details, but I'm not reliving something. Um, they, even though I just moved into a house at Christmas. And, and it's like a huge, the biggest you can imagine, the biggest picture frame that you've ever seen. And then, then my mom goes, I found every school picture that you have ever taken. I found every report card that you have ever gotten. I found every note from a teacher that was good and some of the ones that were kind of bad but funny. I found some of the artwork that you did. I've got your senior photos. I've got all your dance pictures with all those different girls that you went to those dances with. And then I got your wedding photos. And I have made a huge, like, shrine to what a wonderful little person that you used to be and what a wonderful fine young man you've grown into and it is gonna go perfect. I measured it, it's gonna go perfect on the wall in your living room where you guys were gonna put a TV. Like it will just fill up that whole wall. I, and, and listen, I, I wanted to keep these things but I love you and I want you to have my favorite things because I want you to have what I wish I could have, you know? And, uh, and so here you go, you know? And then everybody else in the family's like, oh, okay, all right. I think we're okay with this present that I've got, right? <laughs> we can love someone so much and we can want so badly to, to, to treat them well out of that. But if we don't really know what they want or what they need or maybe they're like who they are, then how well can we really give them what they want, right? And give them what they need. And people have known this for thousands of years, so they've said, we can't. We can't do that. And the more that we try to impose that upon one another, it will probably be a bad thing. So let's just stick with this lowest denominator of let's not kill each other, let's not hurt each other, let's avoid doing the things that we know will harm us. And if we can live that way, then we can all be at peace. Then life will go okay. Then the world will go well. Yet, even though this seems to be the one rule that every person alive can agree on, let's just treat this other person in a way that we can avoid being treated badly as a result. If we can all agree on that, which we seem to be able to, if, we, if every culture and every group can live that way, then things must be going pretty well. But they don't seem to be. What is the world that we get as a result of this? We get exactly where we are right now. We are extremely divided. All of us are so very divided. We are extremely territorial. We are surrounded by people, but we feel alone and we feel isolated. In fact, oftentimes, when we're surrounded by more and more people, we seem to feel more and more invisible as a result of being around those people. This is often most evident with the young, with the old, or with the sick, because those are places in life when we're forced to be a little bit more dependent than we otherwise would be on other people. And we realize in those moments maybe how few people there are that we feel that we could truly depend on in this world. And so here we find ourselves living in a world that most would agree is in some way, shape, or form overpopulated, it seems. And yet with all of these people agreeing to this golden rule that is supposed to keep things pretty good between all of us, we feel divided, we feel ignored, and we absolutely feel in a visceral, physical sense, 
alone. Like we can't actually count on almost anybody. We've got our sphere of people, maybe our family, maybe a couple of close friends. If you're a part of a church, maybe that's why you're a part of a church because that increases the group of people who are simply looking out for you, which kind of makes sense in this world. But we live in a world surrounded by people but totally alone. And we also recognize that somehow we still don't even really look out for each other in the way that you think we would if we all agree to this law. Um, there's something called the, uh, the Genovese or the Genovese effect. And it came um, sort of a- after all of these studies by something that happened to a woman named Kitty Genovese in, uh, in New York. I think it was in New York in the 60s. She was uh, a young woman out in front of her apartment in this part of the city. She was robbed and she was beaten and she was, ultimately she died. She was robbed and murdered. And um, what ended up happening was they came to investigate it and realized that between 38 and 50 people witnessed what happened or knew that, she, that something had happened and did nothing to help her. And that the reason that she died, and the only reason that she died, was because people ignored what was going on. And so laws had to be enacted that said that if you are a bystander and a crime is committed and you don't do something and you can do something, then you're going to be guilty of a crime. What does that say about us? That we need laws to make us care about people who are dying right in front of us, who are hurting right in front of us. A man was writing a book about this. His last name is Rosenthal, and this was a quote in Psychology Today about it. In his book, Rosenthal asked a series of behavioral scientists to explain why people do or do not help a victim. And sadly, he found that none could offer an evidence-based answer. How ironic that this same question was answered separately by a non-scientist. When the killer was apprehended, and the chief of detectives asked him how he dared to attack a woman in front of so many witnesses, the psychopath calmly replied, I knew they wouldn't do anything. People never do. We know that this isn't enough, that this rule isn't enough. What we see here is that by simply ignoring people, we can cause them harm. By choosing to not look at them and stay, mind our own business and stay in our own world, that we can be guilty of harming others by what we allow to happen to them. And we also actually feel really compelled to see a lot more than this. You see it in government, you see it in our families, you see it in society. We want more than this level of a rule. We say, I mean, nobody raises their kids and says, listen, this is all you need to know. Don't hurt anyone else. Don't do something bad or mean to anyone else. Beyond that, I don't care what you do. You'll be fine. No one, no one truly raises people they care about that way because there's more than that. Because life is more than just don't hurt anyone so they'll stay out of your way and they'll leave you alone. We know that's not how we want to live. And so Jesus, in summing up the Sermon on the Mount combines the law and the prophets as they teach here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he combines it and uses the very language that so many have used before him and since him, which is this eye of, uh, of, of treating one another in a way that you wish to be treated. And he says this to his disciples. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What Jesus is doing here is absolutely incredible. This teaching that most would look at in the Sermon on the Mount, I've, in the past when I've taught on the Sermon on the Mount, I've put the entire sermon up on one slide, and like all of it. You think my font is small now. It's small font, right? I put it all up on the slide, and then I would say, I'm gonna highlight the part of this sermon that everyone likes and everyone loves and is the one thing everyone remembers, and it is whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, and that's pretty much it. That's the one everyone agrees on. That's the one we think is the most palatable. That's the one we can all swallow. That's the one that make people say, Jesus is a good teacher, sure, he's great, even if you don't like the other stuff you read about in the Bible. This is the least offensive thing that Jesus probably says in his ministry. We know that because so many other people say it. Not true. What Jesus is saying here is the positive. He is saying, you are to 
treat others in a way that you want them to treat you. Not avoid treating them in a bad way so they'll leave you alone. And in saying this, what he implies with it is probably one of the most revolutionary and offensive things that Jesus teaches. He is telling his disciples it is your job to be the ones who love people in a way that there is now love in the world. That proactively invade the space of other people and see yourself as a catalyst for this way of living in such a way that it actually changes things. That you are, in a sense, breaking this cycle. He is saying that we have to live in a way that can only be compelled by love for other people. Why? Because deep down, we want to be loved too. We don't want to live in a society where we just avoid harming each other. We want to live in a society where people care about each other. So we care about them, even before others care about us, even if others don't care about us. Jesus gives a great example of this in Luke when a, when a lawyer comes up to him, oh, this guy, and he asks him a question about the law. In Luke 10, it says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the neighbor as, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the Shema right there. He just quoted it word for word. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A smart person would have walked away. This guy does not walk away. But he, desiring to justify himself, he just wanted to make sure that he was already doing this because he was so confident that he was. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by to the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's hard to imagine when you read this parable that this would ever happen in real life, Right? That would never happen in our society, in the world in which we live, in the city in which I live, that someone would be beaten and left for dead and people would just walk by. What Jesus is saying to this lawyer in this parable is something very important. He's defining what a neighbor is. A neighbor is not just a person who lives near you, who walks by you. A neighbor is the one who shows you mercy, which is undeserved. A neighbor is the one who shows you love. That's what makes them a neighbor. We can call people around us neighbors. We can call them, you know, countrymen and, and, and people that we live in the same place as and pretend like we share life with them because of that. But according to Jesus, unless you do this, you're nobody's neighbor and they're not your neighbor. Now, the other point that Jesus makes in this parable that's so important is who harmed this man? Was it the robbers who beat him and stripped him? Yes. But who else harmed this man? Was the two people that walked by him. One was a priest and one was from the tribe of priests. Basically a person who for his whole life would always live within a group of people who were considered to be the religious best of the Israelites. And both of them harmed this man. All they do is walk by and go, hey, that, that's not my problem. I mean, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That's not me. That's not my deal. And Jesus is saying, you are harming this person by walking by. Whatever low standard you think the golden rule is, that's not what it is. And that doesn't work. Because if we live in a society where we just ignore everything that happens and say, that's not my problem because I didn't do it, then where does it get us? It gets us exactly where we are. 
And so Jesus' message is one of describing a kind of love that compels us. It pushes us to do something that is unbelievably offensive, and it is this, to invade people's space and to love them. Really, to say, I'm going to get in your space and I'm going to care about you a lot. Why is that so offensive? Get out of my space. Why is that so offensive? You don't know what I want. You don't know what I need. You don't know how I want to be loved. You certainly don't know how I need to be loved. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, how do you want to be treated? That is how you treat others. And it is to compel us to invade other people's space and their lives and to make something happen. It's to forgive people when it has not been earned by a relationship, by a friendship. It is to still forgive them. It's to give to someone who doesn't deserve it. To give to someone who isn't important enough for us, to us in our lives, to justify it. It's to care about somebody, even though it in no way benefits us, and they haven't asked us to care about them. It's to presume that we know what other people around us need, which is God and the kind of love that Jesus tells us to have. It's to care for the sick. It's to adopt a child. It is to care for the least loved people in society, even if it costs us a lot to do so. It is to sit across from someone and tell them the truth of the gospel. It is to bring community to those living in isolation because we want them to know what family really is and what community really is. Avoiding harm and offense doesn't actually get us anywhere. This is what gets us somewhere. And this is what Jesus begins to conclude his entire sermon by telling his disciples to do. I want you to go. And I want you to treat people well. I want you to treat them as well as you want them to treat you. When you don't deserve forgiveness, but you desperately wish that you had it, treat someone that way. When you're in need and you've done nothing to deserve it, to deserve help, give someone help in that situation. Take in someone and care for someone and help someone, even though there's no reason or obligations socially for you to do so. Do that. Because were you that person, you would want that. You would need it. But you'd also have to throw your hands up and say, well... How can I expect that of anyone? Because that's not how we live. We want even our own children to know that we love them, to know that they should love each other, but do we want them to know about loving other people? It is so easy for children to grow up being poured into again more and more and more, getting the message that I am the most important person in the universe, I mean, when I look at my parents, it seems that way because they're giving everything to me. They're killing themselves for me. Clearly, I'm a big deal. Clearly, I'm important. But do we even raise children knowing that other people are important? Heaven forbid, as important. Heaven forbid, more important than us. Is that a value in our homes? That other people matter more than we do? We do a, here's why, here's why that's a great value to have in your home, because we do a great job of caring for each other, of loving each other, of sticking up for each other, and it's our default. I, I said last week, I don't even have to remind myself to do things that bring my kids joy sometimes, because I so enjoy seeing them enjoy those things. I take pleasure selfishly from that. My wife and I were living in um, the neighborhood that we used to live in. We, uh, we, when we moved into the neighborhood, we were like, we really want to get to know all of our neighbors. And we tried to get to know a few neighbors, and you know, people weren't like super social, and 
it's kind of hard to talk to everybody. And, and then we were like really busy. And so, you know, it, it always seemed inconvenient. It's not like you just want to stop and chat. Um, we always had a lot of stuff going on. And we got to know these neighbors across the street, though, pretty well because they had a kid the age of our daughter and, and our kids would play together. And uh, the, 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 they lived in a household with, like, grandparents and parents and stuff, and this little girl. And the, the grandmother, um, who was, like, just in her late 50s, I think, she developed cancer. She got breast cancer for the second time in her life. And um, we didn't really know at first, but then, like, stuff started coming into the house and things like that. And, and then the neighbors started to talk, and everybody felt really badly because she wasn't doing well. She was so sick. And, and we were like, we really want to really help them. We had been bringing them meals and stuff like that, but we're like, there's got to be some way. Because everybody we talk to in the neighborhood is going, yeah, I, I just, I feel, I, I wish I could help. Well, it's just something I could do. But people weren't very connected. Nobody was very connected. And so my wife had this idea of, like, well, why don't I just go and try to get everybody to do something? And then we'll, we'll, so she went around and just said, um, we're going to give them something at Christmas. Like, do you want to give them a gift or something? Like, put them all in a basket. We'll just, we'll give them all. So we, so we went around and, 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 and everybody loved the idea. Everybody. We're like, yes, I'm like, I'm desperate. I want to help. You know, I want to do anything that I can to communicate that I care about this family that's hurting right now. And frankly, I don't have the words or the tools to even know how to do it. And I don't even feel like I have the relationship. Most neighbors didn't feel like they had the relationship to just walk up and say, how can I help? And so we brought this gift to them, and, you know, you know, would you believe it? They didn't throw it out the door, right? The guy didn't pick it up and go, how could you think that this is what we need? Don't you know us or care about us? No. He said, wow, this is, like, incredible. And I think what was so wonderful about being able to help them in that way, apart from simply knowing that it, was, it, was, it communicated to them, that their neighbors love them and care about them was seeing how excited everyone else was because people were feeling like, I don't know how to communicate this. I don't know how to proactively care about people who aren't immediately in my sphere of people. I don't have the words to use. I don't have the relationship already. And I feel like it's presumptuous to think I even know what somebody would need. It takes work sometimes to be able to figure these things out. But this is what Jesus says. He says, if you were in that position... Would you want that from others? And we would. But we have such low expectations of everybody that we live around and the world in which we live that we would never think to do it for other people. And so we don't even expect it of ourselves. You see, the problem is that so many people were following Jesus, but he knew that so few people were genuinely, truly following him. So as he begins to conclude his Sermon on the Mount, he begins to say things, to communicate to people. I know there's so many. I know that you love the miracles and you love the miraculous feedings and all these things that are happening. And I know that a lot of what I'm saying gives you hope and makes you feel good. And, and maybe you've been healed or your family's been healed or affected, and that's great. But this is what it is to follow me. is to love people like this in a way that doesn't make sense because that's how we want to be loved. And what he would begin to find is that the group gets smaller and smaller and smaller of people who really are willing to do these things. And our devotion to Jesus is gonna be measured less and less by how we love people in our own sphere and more by how we love people outside of our sphere. And so Jesus, knowing that this will actually not be easy, says the next part. He says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is saying there are two roads here. There is one to destruction, and there is one that leads to life. Well, who doesn't want to be on the road that leads to life, right? That sounds great. He says, but here's the deal with these two roads. The one that leads to destruction is wide. Here's why being a wide road matters. Because the nice thing about being on a wide road or an easy way headed for a wide gate is that you usually don't have to change course at all. You're already there, right? It's like, getting, it's like being on, on, a, on a highway and getting up to a, a bunch of toll booths that are all open and going, well, all right, I'm fine. I just keep going. 
There's no merging over. There's no connecting. There's no getting off of where you are to get somewhere else. There's no change whatsoever involved. In fact, you naturally just find yourself on the wide road. It's where you started. And that's the great thing about the wide road is that you get to stay exactly where you are and you still get through some gate somewhere. And the bad news that Jesus is giving us is that that road that is so wide, that gate that is so easy, leads instead to destruction. It's easy because you can keep doing what you're doing. You can keep living how you're living. You can keep caring about what you already cared about and you can be self-serving which most of us are when we're honest. And so you find yourself on that road and, 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 and you find, hey, listen, it's okay to care about yourself and your people and nobody else. That's okay. The world will be okay if we all just do that. And you can stay on that wide, easy road. But then he talks about another road, the narrow road. A narrow road takes a lot of concentration to stay on takes a lot of work to stay on consistently the whole time you're on the road. But the other thing that it leads to is a narrow gate, which means lots and lots of merging over. It means lots and lots of lane changes and lots and lots of moving and going over and saying, I'm going to have to adjust and adjust and adjust if I want to stay on this road, which means it's difficult. It's not just narrow, but it is difficult to stay on that road, to fit through that gate, and then to look through the gate and know that the road continues to be narrow, it says, on the other side of that gate. The word for hard here means to cause someone to suffer, to cause trouble or hardship, to endure persecution. There's a reason Jesus is telling them this at this point, and here's why, and it's so important. He's saying to them, this is going to be hard. All the things you hear about in this sermon, all the things that we're talking about, these are going to be difficult things to live out. Not just in a self-discipline sort of sense. People are actually not going to like you much of the time. People won't agree with you. People will tell you that you're narrow-minded. People will tell you that you are foolish. People will tell you some of the most hurtful things of all, which is you're on the wrong road and you only get one shot at this life. This isn't true. This isn't right. You're blowing it. There is no greater end in life than to realize who you truly are and to live that out with total freedom and liberty. You aren't doing that. You're wrong about who you think you are and you're wrong about how you're restricting yourself to live in this narrow road. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is going to be difficult, but you have to know something, and this is crucial. You have to know that difficult doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean something bad is happening to you. When we're in pain, we react. We get away. That's what we naturally do. If I'm making choices in my life and my life starts to not go well, I stop and I reevaluate. I should if, that was a, if I was a smart person. And I go, what is leading me to this? Why do I keep ending up in this hole? Why do I keep... Why do I keep why do things keep being difficult? I came to Jesus thinking, I need to turn my life around. So I'm going to do a lot of work. I'm going to Sermon on the Mount. That's good. That's really helpful. Those are practical things. I'm going to work on things. And then I'm going to get to a point where I'm good. And then I'm going to kind of coast. But the road keeps being hard. I must not be getting something right. I must not be doing something right. And Jesus is saying, no. The worst thing that you can do is my disciple is associate difficulty and persecution and pain and suffering with wrong, with bad, with on the wrong road. You can't make that mistake. Disciples, don't make that mistake. Know that the road that I'm calling you to walk on is a difficult one and it is a narrow one. I could stop repenting at any point. I could avoid those people I don't want to be around. I could live in a bubble of people who I think get me, who are like me. I could go back and I could look at what Jesus said again, and I could go, oh, okay. I, th I, think, I, think, I think Ed might have been a little bit extreme in what he was communicating, and I'm realizing it's a little bit more, it's not quite as intense as he was saying. So yeah, no, it's not quite as hard as I thought it was. That's why it's so difficult. That's why it's been so hard. There's, uh, I read a book a while ago called The Sociopath Test. 
And um, my wife made me read it. No. And uh, it, was, it was like a self-exam in a, in a I was just, I just took this test and then it said it was a sociopath. So that's what I thought. No. So I read this book called The Sociopath Test and a guy wrote it and he studied a bunch of sociopaths. And what's so fascinating about this book is sociopaths don't just end up being serial killers, believe it or not, and criminals. In fact, what he found in his study was that another likely outcome for a sociopath was to become a CEO or to become a person who was incredibly successful in the business world. Now, I'm not saying that CEOs are sociopaths, but I am saying this, uh, capitalism and the business world in which we are so often around and live in, turns out it greatly rewards ruthlessness and lack of empathy for people. That if you can be cold and heartless, if you can be discompassionate, if you can not care about other people like you care about yourself, you can sometimes do pretty well in business, it turns out. I say that because lacking empathy, being a sociopath, can actually turn out pretty good for people sometimes. We don't really live in a world where if you do bad things, your life will just always fall apart. Turns out if you do bad things, sometimes life goes okay. And this again is why Jesus is telling them the road will be difficult. There will be persecution. People will tell you that you're wrong. In fact, historically speaking, more will tell you that you're wrong than will tell you that you're right. There will be suffering. There will be sacrifice. There may be death. But difficult doesn't mean repressive and it doesn't mean oppressive. It doesn't mean that you've chosen to live in such a way that you're repressed, that you're oppressed, that you're limited in some capacity that you shouldn't be as a person. Jesus is calling us to love people in a very radical way. And what I mean by radical is this. He's calling us to love people in a way that the world would look at and say that's not possible and that's not good for us. It's an offensive way of caring for people. It's saying, I'm going to spend a lot more time thinking about what you need and what you want than you probably would want me to. And then I'm going to love you because that's what I would want. It is. As much as I'd like to think that I can get through this life with just a couple of people taking care of me and me and my little group of people, that's not really what I want. I want to know that the people around me, that my neighbors, that the people I live in the same city as, the people I go to school with, the people that I work with, that they actually want good for me as much as they want good for themselves. The only way that we could actually live that, that way it would take a lot of courage. It would take a lot of courage to live that way, to actually believe that we can go forth and do that because it doesn't seem possible. It seems painful and miserable on our end. How could I possibly expend that much effort on other people? How could I possibly take any of the precious time and effort that I'm spending on myself and give it to others? The time and effort that I'm giving even to my own family and give to others because that's the world that I wanna live in is where people really do that. And I'm not going to buy the lie anymore that we live in like this great society and we're all taking care of each other and everyone's okay and we're all happy because we're not. And it's not. We're not taking care of each other. We're not looking out for each other. We live in a society that has to have laws that force us to report crimes sometimes because otherwise we wouldn't because it's none of our business. And Jesus is also telling us that when we live this way, we will find ourselves on a relatively lonely road. That's, that's hard to hear. Love others, care for others. It will be lonely. There won't be a lot of people on that road with you. The crazy thing is that this is the part of the sermon that everybody agrees on. Because it seems like the easiest one to take. It fits on the widest road. And I think what's so incredible about this is that as we're, we're called to share the gospel with people, as we're called to reach those outside the walls of the church, that we begin to realize when we see this teaching of Jesus, I think, that for many of us, that consists of nothing more than, what do I say to someone who doesn't believe? 
How do I argue back with them? How do I answer their objections? How do I be prepared so that when I get into some kind of a debate, how do I defend myself if I need to? And we begin to realize that if we haven't started with simply treating them the way that we really do wish that people would treat us, that we are not at the first step of evangelism. We're not at the first step of reaching out. We're not as a church at the first step of reaching our community. That the first step is always going to be simply saying, I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna love you proactively. I'm gonna invade your space. I'm gonna invade your world and I'm gonna care about you. And that's what I'm gonna do with that. That that's what we're gonna do as a church. That that's a good thing. Turns out it's also an incredibly offensive thing. So we do it carefully, we do it wisely, uh, but we also do it knowing that there won't be a lot of other people on that path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, what you have done, the model that you have been for us in this, Lord. You sent your son to die for us. You showed us mercy that we didn't deserve. God, I pray that if nothing else, this would be a reminder to us of how much we, I think, lower our standard of living in community and with other people because of what we think we have to accept. We think that if we could just keep from hurting each other that we'll be fine and we'll be okay, but we're not okay. Things aren't fine around us. And the real problem, the real thing that's broken in this world is, is relationships. It's our hearts. It's us. It's not government, it's not institutions, it's not laws, it's us. And so our prayer is that you would change our hearts, that we would be the ones to choose to walk on the difficult road that involves repentance constantly. And that as we do that, that we would then begin to realize how we can love others more and that they would see in that love a glimpse of you and your kingdom, Father. That they would say, this is a love that doesn't make sense. This person is acting in a way that doesn't make sense and that they would in that see you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, we live in a world with a very low standard for how we treat one another. And that we have only lived in this world and we've been so affected by it that it's the standard by, for many of us by which we live our own lives. But God, as we just sang, you have given us a new heart a heart with your love. And Lord, that is the only way that we could live in the way you've called us to moving forward, which is not with this low standard, thousands and thousands of years of people just avoiding hurting one another, but instead to be a people of love, to believe and to hope and to trust and actually have faith in the fact that that can happen, that we can live that way, that out of the hearts that you've given us, God, that we can love others. God, it is our prayer that we do that. God, that we look in at our own hearts and that we be willing to repent when it's hurt, when it hurts, when it's difficult, when the road is hard, that we would know that the heart is not a sign of bad or wrong, and that, God, we would love people, that when all else fails, that we would love people, that when in doubt, we would love people, and that we would be their neighbors, not because we live near them or work with them or go to school with them, but because we love them and they consider us their neighbors because of that, Lord. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.